During the, the time of the Buddha's life, part of the life of the nuns and the monks at that time would be that they would travel through the countryside, going from village to village, um, talking about the practice and spending time in discussion with the villagers. And in one village that they came to, um, one of the villagers came to the Buddha and he said, why is it that the nuns and the monks with you are so happy? And the Buddha answered them, answered the man, and he said, because they have no regrets over the past, and because they don't brood over the future, and because they are not preoccupied with anything in the present, therefore they are awake and they are radiant. This quality, this emphasis upon awakening, is really the heart of everything that we do here, everything that we do in meditation. Everything that we do in this path, the forms of silence, the forms of solitude, of simplicity, the practices we engage in of attentiveness, of opening, of being present, all of these actually are not in the service of becoming perfect yogis. They are in the service of being awake, of opening our own hearts and minds to what is true. Now, awakening can be a kind of a vague word. <coughs> what is it that we are seeking to awaken from? We were seeking to awaken from the many forms of struggle and unhappiness that can dominate and oppress our lives. We're seeking to awaken from the variety of belief systems and images and projections that can lead to so much struggle and mind storms and disharmony. We're seeking to awaken from the whole variety of ways that we can color the world, other people, and ourselves with old history, with fear and with anger. We're seeking to awaken from greed and anger and delusion. And what is it that we are seeking to awaken to? Well, we are really endeavoring to see what is true in every moment, in the world, in other people, and ourselves, to understand what is true, what is actual, and to live in harmony with that. That's the doorway to calmness, to peace, to happiness. Then how do we cultivate awakening? We learn, actually, to cultivate an environment within ourselves which is conducive to understanding, which is a culture of awakening. An environment of awakening is also an environment and a culture of healing. Healing our bodies, healing our minds, healing our hearts. And both an environment of healing and awakening, I think, must be environments of gentleness, of care and sensitivity. 
environments of remarkable kindness. I think this is one probably of the most important lessons that we learn in our lives. It's really difficult to find any person or any relationship that deepens or that can open when there's an environment of harshness, of blame, of mistrust, or of fear. These qualities never offer and never invite awakening. Instead, all that they lead to is more suspicion, more fear, more hardness of heart and mind. In fact, when we are exposed to harshness and fear, often we, all that we do is to become filled with struggle and resistance. And yet, I think it is also so easy for us to forget this most essential lesson as we approach our own path of meditation. Very often we can come into meditation or into this room and look at our zafu as if we're entering into some kind of battle zone. Or we can sit in meditation and be so filled with judgment and blame and forcing and struggle and rejection. Compassion and acceptance and generosity are very primary lessons in cultivating a path of kindness. But sometimes it's pretty, it's pretty amazing when we can listen to our own inner dialogue. And the way that we speak to ourselves sometimes, actually, people mention they feel quite appalled. As they're shouting at themselves, judging themselves, blaming themselves, can you imagine what would happen to any relationship in your life if you spoke to another person in the way that you speak to yourself sometimes? It probably wouldn't flourish. Would they want to stay close to us? Would they want to stay connected? Would they say, thank you very much? Most often not. And neither can we open or deepen in an environment of harshness. Sometimes when we listen to the story of the Buddha's awakening, it sounds like a really short story. You know, the Buddha kind of went along, he sat under the Bodhi tree after doing a few years of different practices, spent one night, got enlightened, got up, and lived ever after in sublime happiness. It sounds like a very short story. And yet, when we read the story of the Buddha's awakening a little bit more deeply, it's actually a much longer story and a much more complex story. The Buddha, in recounting his own journey, and you can type this in a kind of symbolic or archetypal way, whatever way you want, the Buddha often spoke about the countless lifetimes that he spent cultivating an inner culture of awakening cultivating an inner environment that was receptive and ripe to understanding. Spoke about the many years, lifetimes spent cultivating the qualities of heart and mind that allowed him to open, to be still and to be receptive. Of fostering open-heartedness and compassion. In the Buddhist tradition, that pathway of cultivating the heart, the pathway of cultivating openness and receptivity, 
It is called cultivating the parameters. Sometimes the parameters is translated as being the perfections or the, the kind of sublime qualities of heart and mind that liberate. In Sanskrit, the pa- paramis are sometimes translated as reaching beyond limitation. Reaching beyond the limitations or, or translated sometimes as going towards. Going towards compassion, going towards wisdom. Going or cultivating the qualities of heart and mind that are intrinsically kind, gentle, and freeing. Now these qualities of heart and mind that are called the parmis, on one level they are healing qualities. They heal suffering and its causes in ourselves and in others. They are also liberating qualities. They free us from ways of seeing and being that divide and separate us. They liberate us and others to be and to unfold. They are opening qualities. They allow us to listen, to be still, and to receive with compassion our own frailties and struggles and the frailties and struggles of others. And they are also qualities of vision because they speak to us about what is really possible for us as human beings. There's a wonderful poem by Galway Kimmel which in some ways describes this this cultivation of the paramis of going towards, and it's called relearning loveliness. It says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Cultivating the tyranny is actually a way of reteaching ourselves, our own possibilities, and reteaching ourselves the loveliness of heart and mind that is possible. Now this cultivation of the paramis, I think it does actually require a fairly radical shift in attitude and in the way that we approach ourselves. We can carry with us in our lives such very powerful, conditioned inclinations towards harshness and judgment towards, instead of focusing upon reteaching ourselves loveliness, find ourselves focusing instead so often upon what is wrong and imperfect in ourselves and in others. Sometimes it happens when we sit in meditation that it even can seem to magnify and increase this already long list of what is wrong with us the more that we become acquainted within our world, 
it seems that it's almost an invitation to lengthen that list of imperfections. So much of our lives, and actually so much of our meditation, can actually become a kind of project or mission of fixing and perfecting everything that is wrong. And of course, you know, you can really sense the flavor of that emphasis in our lives and the way that it leads to so much struggle and resistance and judgment and blame. This is, of course, one path that we can follow. It's not actually the path of the parami, and neither is it actually the path of meditation. Of cultivating the paramis or reteaching ourselves our own loveliness, it's not a path of denial or suppression. It's not a way of trying to pretend that everything is perfect and fine. Because obviously, you know, experiences of pain and experiences of suffering, these are very real experiences in our lives. The path of the paramis is much more one where there is a recognition of suffering, of confusion, of pain. There is a responsiveness to it, an acknowledgement of the need for healing, but not through fixing, not through altering, not through blaming or through manipulating, but through cultivating those qualities of heart and mind that allow us to go towards what is possible. An example of this is a few years ago, these institutions called the Magdalene uh, convents closed down. And for a long period of time, the Magdalene convent, some years ago, not that long ago, um, were provided as an environment in which, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, young women who were considered to be at that time sort of socially un unacceptable or somewhat morally lax were sent. It was also a place where single mothers were sent to have their children. And recently I was watching a, a documentary about a young woman who was actually one of those children who was born in the Magdalene convent, who was separated from her mother at birth and raised in what she described as a loveless environment an environment of harshness and coldness. And actually she did have to resort to having to escape when she was 18. And she did escape, and she said at the time after she escaped that her relationship to the world was one of continuing this, this fear of lovelessness and harshness. And how, through being shaped by her childhood, how she felt that she could never actually commit herself to another person, could never open in that way for fear of being hurt and rejected. And she said at one time she, she got this, she actually found herself in this job where she was looking after small children and beginning it in a way where she felt that she had to sustain and maintain this distance and the same coldness. And how at one point she found her her heart melting in relationship to these small children. And realized that for her, actually, it was not a, it was, it was a question of her actually going towards what is possible, of taking that risk of loving, of taking that risk of commitment, 
and of leaving behind this image and this prison of history. And sometimes I think that is actually what the Taramis is about in our own lives. It is sometimes leaving behind the images and the prisons of history, based upon history, and going towards, taking the risk of going towards what is possible. What are the paramis, the qualities that are cultivated? They're the qualities of generosity, of integrity or ethics, of renunciation, of wisdom, of energy, of patience, of truthfulness, of resolution, of loving kindness, and equanimity. Generosity is the first of the times, the practice of giving, to hold on to nothing as mine, to have nothing to defend. The practice of generosity is it is an antidote to the inclination of mind to think so much in terms of holding, possessing, of armoring, out of fear. The spiritual paths really abound in stories of generosity, and not just material generosity, but generosity of spirit. Recently I was reading about a, a monastery in Japan, and the entire practice of the monastery is cleaning. They go off by the busload in the morning, not carrying a zafu, but carrying a bucket and a mop and a few rags. And they go off into the local villages or the railway station looking for things to clean. You know, and actually, the dirtier the better. You know, and this is their entire practice. They gave me an entire new take on housework, I can tell you. This is their practice, day after day after day. And they interviewed, some of the people spoke about it as a practice of thanksgiving. A practice of helping to make the world beautiful. And a practice of not finding endings. Because, I mean, we've all had a little experience in this housework business, right? You don't get to the end. It's always this practice of not finding endings and thanksgiving. And I thought, well, what a remarkable kind of heart it takes to do that. And actually, these people weren't suffering. You know, they didn't go out, you know, with sour faces, you know, more dirt today. I mean, they didn't go out, you know, like this is some kind of path of, of endurance or martyrdom. You know, they were happily. This was a path of joy, a path of happiness. And one of the nuns, when she was really asked, what was really the key of this practice? You know, <laughs> obviously it would be quite mysterious, perhaps, to many of us. She said, what is the key of this practice? And she said, you know, it's learning to live a simple life with great affluence. Isn't that an amazing thing? To live a simple life with great affluence. To live a simple life with a richness of heart. This is really the practice of generosity. It's a story or a practice of really trying to discover and learning to discover a heart without walls, 
and a heart without boundaries, a heart that's not governed by self or by fear. It is actually quite a remarkable practice in our lives. I mean, we probably, you may have already seen in a retreat and environment, you know, how this inclination of holding can arise in both subtle and really very obvious ways. You know, that range from the way we can become, you know, within hours, territorial about my walking space or my favorite chair in the dining room, um, the ways that we can become territorial about my time, my energy, my desires, my goals, my opinions, my views, my resentments, my judgments. And what does that inclination of mind really do to us? I mean, these are really, I think, very inviting moments. To really look at those moments when it's up for us. You know, when we're holding on to anything as mine, and we're pretty aware of where we're holding on to something as mine. You know, it, it has a quite a distinct taste or flavor to it in our feelings, in our consciousness. It's helpful for us to be aware of those moments. I mean, what kind of space is that for us? I mean, when we're desperately holding on to anything, you know, whether we're kind of keeping our eye on our favorite chair as we're standing in the lunch line or, you know, you know, zooming from the meditation room so we can get to our walking space before someone else or even holding on to a judgment about someone, what's the flavor of that? I mean, does it really feel like a place of happiness for us? You know, in those moments of really, you know, does it feel like a place of joy? a place of oneness with life, a place of celebration? Most likely, actually not. Instead, often, if we really look at those moments where we're holding, what is our relationship, actually, to the world around us and to other people? It's most often that we see them as a kind of an intruder, even a thief. You know, they might threaten or take something that is mine. And so much of that holding, it's really, isn't it really be based around, not, a, not around a feeling of, of a heart of great affluence and richness, but most often holding is coming from a place actually where we feel somewhat deprived, where we feel maybe there's not enough, not good enough, or don't have enough. So we need to protect and defend what we have. Learning to practice generosity is actually a great gift of generosity to ourselves. You know, Baker Roche once said that, and the definition of an enlightened person is that they always have what they need, that there is always enough. You know, whether they're alone, whether they're in a crowd, whether they're in a meditation room, whether they're in the middle of Newton Abbott, they have enough. They have what they need. That is actually the simplicity of great affluence. To look to this moment, to actually really open in a way that we live our lives based not on feelings of deprivation, but discover that possibility of there always being enough. 
When we explore these moments in this way of generosity, we really might come to understand much more deeply the way in which holding is a place of suffering and that giving is a place of freedom and that it's also such a place of compassion for ourselves. You know, holding is actually really hard work. It actually takes so much effort and it creates so much intensity within ourselves that is painful. This is not just some good theory. You might look at it in your own life. Look at the experience of holding to see the way it is a place of suffering. It is from that kind of wisdom that generosity comes. The generosity comes so freely to us. A generosity nurtures and is nurtured by the cultivation of integrity, of honesty, of ethics, in relationship to ourselves and others. You know, we've spoken already a couple of times on this retreat about ethics and what that means, that cultivation of goodness. You know, that's such a strange, you know, such a kind of unused word in our world. Actually, some people might even feel embarrassed by it. The cultivation of goodness. Because the cultivation of ethics is more than just actually, you know, I won't do this and I won't do this, I won't take life, I won't steal, I won't lie. The cultivation of ethics is actually this cultivation of protecting, of extending protection, extending safety, extending well-being to ourselves and to others. You know, and sometimes we hear it so often, we think, oh, you know, I know that ethical stuff. You know, one time we offered a retreat here at Gaia House on the precepts, and nobody signed up. Either it's because we have such a virtuous sangha, you know, that nobody needs to do this, or else everybody just has this idea, oh, I know that stuff. You know, I know that. I don't need, I don't need nothing more for me to learn there. But ethics is so subtle, isn't it? Because it's not just about, you know, avoiding the ants on the pavement. It's also about what happens in our minds and hearts with our feelings and our thoughts. What powerful things are feelings and thoughts. And look what happens in our inner world and in our inner environment when we're actually entertaining or fostering thoughts which are based on anger, based on dismissal based on rejection or based on greed. Again, is it a place of happiness? No, the mind feels like a stone. It feels like a stone. And often, of course, what happens for us is that there are so many ripples from that harboring. I mean, you know, so many times if we said words, you know, that we would wish hadn't been said. Or even when we think thoughts, you know, that are really harsh towards another person, and afterwards, the taste of bitterness that they leave behind, the feeling of, of kind of regret, of, of remorse, of wishing to undo, or sometimes just the anxiety that comes from this, you know. I said that, I did that, you know, and what's going to happen next? Because it's disconnection. Because it's disconnection. 
The practice of ethics is actually the practice of loving kindness and respect, and it is what allows our minds and hearts to open, to calm down, and to live in the world in a way in which we really do feel that we have nothing to fear. Those qualities of goodness are actually nourished by the paramis or the quality of renunciation, our capacity to let go. Now this is probably the place of greatest challenge in our lives and our practice. You know, intellectually, we are absolutely fantastic at letting go, you know, it, or agreeing with letting go. You know, we all think it's, it's, you know, we can think it's such a grand idea to be able to let go of things. You know, renunciation seems like such a terrific idea, and we nod our heads wisely. And yet, often, our, so often, our experience is this experience of obsessing and dwelling and holding. The unfortunate thing about holding is that, or clinging is that it's quite undiscriminating. You know, it would be, it would seem that it would be okay if we could have choices around clinging, you know, and would only cling to the pleasant. But unfortunately, this inclination towards clinging means that it's quite undiscriminating. That not only do we cling to all of those thoughts and experiences and feelings and sounds which are pleasant and say, oh, I want this to last, you know, this to stay, we unfortunately find ourselves also equally holding on to the difficult and the painful. They come together. They come together. And one of the basic lessons about holding is that what we grasp hold of, we are also imprisoned by. Now, traveling the path of reaching beyond limitation or going towards asks us to actually practice letting go. Letting go of our preoccupations with the past and our anxieties about the future, letting go of our desires and our guilts and our images and our fears. Why? Do we let go in order to suffer? No. We let go in order to bring about the end of suffering. If we look at our lives, it actually, they actually teach us a tremendous amount about letting go, because life in itself is a natural process of letting go. For us to have been a child, we needed, there was a letting go of being an infant. To be an adult, there's a letting go of being an adolescent, to age gracefully. There's a letting go of what has already gone by. To be present in any moment, fully, we need to be able to let go of what is past. To be able to learn from this moment and everything that it offers, we need to let go of, the, of its history. Our practice becomes more and more an of letting go. It is a gift to us in our practice. 
You know, I think sometimes one of the best recommendations we could have in terms of meditation would be to the encouragement to have completely forgettable sittings. And that doesn't mean to have sort of mindless sittings, you know, where we forgot we were even there. But forgettable in the sense of not, you, not storing history. Because, you know, we see what that does to us. You know, if we've come into a sitting and it's been kind of strenuous or difficult, well, you know, do we come into the next sitting smiling at our zafu? Most often not. You know, we come in feeling, oh no, it's going to happen again. You know, when we, when we, if we've had a sitting that's been really enjoyable and wonderful and delightful, we probably do come into the next sitting smiling at our zafu and saying, Oh, I can't wait for it to repeat itself. And yet to learn from what that moment is offering us, it's not benefited by carrying history. I think this is true in all of our lives. I mean, to meet a person, even the person that we know so well, to go into that encounter with them, burdened and carrying all every moment of history we've had with that person, the things that they said to us that we didn't like, you know, the ways that, that we, they acted that offended us, you know, the things that, that they didn't, the expectations they didn't live up to. Of course, how do we meet that person in the present? Not actually with a tremendous amount of openness, but instead already with this history. This might also actually be somewhat true of ourselves. You know, to meet ourselves fully in this moment, in some ways we need to let go of our own history. You know, if we are too burdened by images, I am like this, you know, I'm this kind of person, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate, you know, I'm, I'm an addict, I'm like this, you know, I can't do this. How open are we to actually listening to ourselves in that moment? Not very much. Sometimes letting go is something that happens really naturally and organically because we're very calm and we're very still and really nothing sticks. Other times letting go actually requires really quite a lot of effort. And it is an effort <coughs> that calls for endless renewal. I think mean, sometimes we have these ideas about letting go, that it's something we're, we're learning and we're building up to, and then we're going to get it. We're going to figure out how to do it, and we're going to be perfect at letting go, and we're just going to have to do that, that once, and then we're never going to have to do it again. This is actually not reality. Letting go is actually a practice of living. It's not something we do once, and then we're perfect at it. It's something that is really an invitation for us in all of those moments when we find ourselves stuck, when we find ourselves entangled, when we find ourselves resisting, when we find ourselves grasping or contracted. Those are the moments that are saying to us, what difference would it make to us in this moment to be able to let go? It's what opens the door to a vast and spacious awareness, a very natural harmony. Letting go, the kind of effort that it needs, is actually quite a persevering, a committed energy. 
the quality of the parami of resolution. I mean, look at, you know, sometimes energy and effort, it, it comes really easily to us. I mean, especially times when we think we're having what we call a good meditation. I mean, if you notice those times when our meditation is what we call good, which generally what we mean by that is that it's pretty pleasant and that it's kind of fitting in with our ideas of what meditation should look like. And nothing's really disturbing us. And we're not being challenged. Often we, we have this idea in that moment, this is a good meditation. Well, we don't have any problem with perseverance and commitment in those moments, do we? think, oh, I could do this forever. You know, sign up for a three-month retreat, you know, go to Burma, you know, I'm here for the long run, you know. Energy and perseverance come so easily for us. We think, you know, forever is a word that comes up. Now, what happens to that energy and resolution in those times when we're having what we call a bad meditation? which is usually, of course, when things aren't going quite according to our plan or image or we're not living up to our own expectations or our bodies or our minds are shouting at us. Effort and energy and perseverance, instead of thinking forever, we're thinking, how long until this ends? You know, those moments of thinking in eternal terms are a distant memory. We think, how long until this ends? that we want the present moment to end. Of course, the interesting thing about the present moment is that it doesn't end. It simply turns and slightly changes and unfolds into a yet another moment and another moment and another moment. Perseverance and resolution is what happens when we are not only in love with the goals of meditation, and the goals of happiness or peace or freedom or well-being. Perseverance is what happens when we are committed to the path. And it really means being steadfast, not only in moments of joy and ease, but also in moments of struggle and difficulty. You know, perseverance is about our own willingness to embrace shadows often. You know, anyone can be generous when there's nothing they want to hold on to. Anyone can be accepting when nothing disturbs them. Anyone can be loving when they're surrounded by caring and flattering people. But it's when we're in the midst of our demons and shadows that we actually learn about acceptance and openness and compassion through perseverance our willingness to stay in touch. It takes a lot of energy, but I think when we think of energy, we shouldn't think of energy in terms of endurance or in terms of, I have so much to get through. You know, sometimes even people think that at the beginning of retreats, they think, oh, there's so many days to go. I have so much to get through. How am I going to make it through even the next hour, never mind the next hundred hours? This is not the way to find energy. What we actually have to take care of is the moment that is right in front of us. That is all that we can take care of. This moment that is right before us. And that takes a lot of patience. The quality of patience. 
Impatience, of course, is one of the companions of our life, wanting things to be different, to be over, to change, to finish, to end, especially when it's unpleasant. And there's different kinds of patience we are asked to find. One of them is the patience of forgiveness. In this life, we meet critical people and people who we dislike, who don't conform to our expectations. We also become impatient with ourselves when we fail to meet up to our own standards or expectations. Moments when we judge or are aversive to ourselves. These are moments that ask for the patience of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't actually mean that we need to love everything, but it does mean really being willing to stay present. There's also the patience of openness, of learning to embrace willingly the difficult. There's a wonderful Tibetan verse which many people say when they begin practice. They say, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. It is a rare person who only has high and blissful and mystical experiences in meditation. For most of us, our paths will include moments of doubt and flatness, moments when it feels like there's nothing happening, times that are remarkably repetitive. Return visitors, and these are times that ask for a remarkable patience to be able to really cultivate a beginner's mind. It is through patience we find equanimity, the willingness to stay equally close, equally near all things. And equanimity in itself is really the root of loving kindness, an unconditional friendliness and welcome for ourselves, for others, for everything that comes into our world. And in this practice, there is no such thing as too much loving-kindness. It is what heals us. It is what restores us, what encourages us, what inspires us, and what connects us. And it is that really that parami, that quality of heart and mind, that really allows us to open and welcome each moment. And sometimes in our days here together, it is helpful to bear, bear in mind, to carry in our hearts the sense of the paramis, the sense of our journey being one of going towards, of reaching beyond, of reaching towards what is possible. And at times reminding ourselves of what are those qualities of renunciation, of patience, of resolution of energy, of effort, of ethics, of honesty, of compassion, the ways in which they are actually allies for us, healing and empowering and befriending quality. If we 
have just a couple of minutes, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.